and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I am your host, Anna Rasquat Paz. In each episode of our show, we speak to top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today, we talk to Richard Vallely, professor of political science at Swarthmore College. Professor Vallely is an expert on American political development and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He wrote two books, Radicalism in the States, The American Political Economy, and the Minnesota Farmer Labor Party in 1989, and The Two Reconstructions, The Struggle for Black Enfranchisement in 2004. The Two Reconstructions received the J. David Greenstone Prize for the best book published in 2003 and 2004, the 2005 Ralph J. Bunch Prize of the American Political Science Association for Excellence on Racial, Ethnic, and Cultural Pluralism and the 2005 V.O. Key Jr. Book Award of the Southern Science Association for Best Book on Southern Politics. Professor Vallely, welcome to our show. Um, it's great to be on. So you, you wrote um, an article included in the 2012 Annual Review of Political Science titled LGBT Politics and American Political Development. So the first question I have for you is, uh, why did you become interested in LGBT politics? Well, I became interested for two reasons. I have a very strong interest in how political democracy expands and how rights are won and struggled for. And secondly, also, for personal reasons, I have close relatives in my family who are gay. So between, between my standing intellectual interest and my personal experience, the, um, the personal became political science. Uh, and uh, and, it's been, and it's been working out very well. So you're, you're a specialist in uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So what, what are the parallels that you have drawn between the two struggles? Well, I've been impressed by differences. The LGBT population in the United States never had to um, fight for voting rights. But the similarity that I also see is that the struggle for black voting rights was a, a cycle. There were voting rights that were won and deepened during the 19th century, and then there was a period of disenfranchisement, and the process had to start all over again. And somewhat similarly, but not quite identically, of course, the struggle for LGBT politics was actually created by a counter-revolution from the top during the 1940s and the 1950s, when what I call a sexuality regime was created that stigmatized homosexuality and lesbianism. And it was in response to that there was a long struggle, just as there was a long voting rights struggle to win uh, back a, a status that had once not been contested uh, as, as it was during black disenfranchisement. In the same way, LGBT people had to define and develop a collective political identity that then led to a struggle to overthrow this very exclusionary sexuality regime that was set in place really in a very short period of time between roughly 1941 and 1953, if you if to pick two, two of the uh, bookends on that process. And so after that, there was, a, there was, a, there was a, a long road back, and we are still in the middle of that, just as in the case of voting rights, we're still seeing the unfolding of the, uh, what I call the second reconstruction of black voting rights. And that is uh, the process that we see now with 
um, with, uh, on the one hand, we have an African-American president, and then on the other hand, we have selective disenfranchisement with voter ID and felony disenfranchisement. So on, over in the sexuality regime, part of the story that fascinates me in the, in the overall struggle for rights in the United States, we see both progress and setbacks. So just this past week, the president of the United States came out in favor of same-sex marriage, but then also the North Carolina voters um, decided to make North Carolina a state that would protect uh, what, what is called traditional marriage. Right. So, you know, one of the reasons that we're talking to you today is is because of this announcement of President Obama's uh, last week. Um, what is is this truly significant? Is this going to be meaningful um, for the future? It's significant because of the great symbolism that's involved. That is, when the president of the United States, even though there are lots of people who disagree with the president, and it's not a a stance that he's taken that is gaining him an awful lot of personal support. Nonetheless, for LGBT people, it's incredibly important that to get that kind of recognition. And so it really benchmarks the discussion going forward once, once the President of the United States comes out in favor in, in such a dramatic way, in favor of same-sex marriage, which is only part of the struggle. I mean, there are a whole range of issues that LGBT citizens face, but same-sex marriage in some senses has come to be seen as the sort of the leading edge, the, the, the most important um, right that has to be won because there's so many other rights that come with recognition of, of same-sex marriage. He also said that he believes in the state's rights to choose to decide for themselves um, whether or not to make it legal. Isn't, isn't this a little bit contradictory? I mean, historically, civil rights struggles have always been um, fought at a federal level. I agree. It's hard for it's one of the things that I think is so distinctive about the, the struggle for LGBT rights is that it is multi-scalar. Voting rights was multi-scalar in the sense that states and localities had to cooperate with the Voting Rights Act and with the 14th and the 15th Amendment. But LGBT struggle, because the populations are smaller and much more dispersed, but also involve concentrations of, of LGBT citizens in particular localities. There is a there is a local and state component to it which, so that there's what I call sexual orientation federalism. And so in some ways the president's stance recognizes that and is appropriate for that. It's not it's not obvious to me that there should yet that I mean there should be a repeal of the Defense of Marriage Act, but there is no national marriage statute and the states and the locales are the, I mean, one of the things that happens in a, in a federalist, federal system like ours is that not all responsibilities are shared across all levels of government. And so, so I think the president's stance is consistent with, with the reality on the ground that, um, that is, has emerged over the past uh, uh, decade or decade and a half in the struggle for same-sex marriage and for, and for equality in terms of in terms of the rights that marriage bring you, so so it's it could be one could say that it's um, it's a, a something that seems like a, a bit of a cop out, but it's not clear to me that it really is. It's it's something I'm still wrestling with. And I mean, there's also an election at the end of this year. Um, do you think it could be a strategic way of dancing around that issue? It could be that, but it, I mean, the president is a constitutional lawyer. 
And so I think he's very up on the law and how marriage law is made in the States. And so it's one of those things where you're left guessing. Did he do it because it really is the right thing to do? I've seen arguments on, on that side of the issue from people whom I respect. But it could also be that the stance is is reminiscent of previous stances where uh, in cases of civil rights where people say, well, we'll just let the states take care of it, which is, which is not setting a, a strong national standard. And so that's the advantage. I mean, we do have a 14th Amendment. And so, so the 14th Amendment would be the vehicle for the Supreme Court to outlaw uh, and in that sense create a national standard to uh, invalidate same-sex marriage. I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon. The, the court's a very long way away from that. So, so in the meantime, I think it's appropriate for the president to, both as a matter of law and as a matter of policy, and also just simply as a matter of good politics, to, to uh, say that the, that, the, that the struggle is going to have to, for, for same-sex marriage, for those people who support it, will have to be, will have to be one state by state. So are we looking at a you know, patchwork of, of different policies across the states for the, for the future? Yes. That's what's so fascinating in many ways about this is that rights can change. You can, be, you can have one set of rights in the state of New York or in the state of Massachusetts or in the state of Vermont, but if you decide to move to Louisiana or if you decide to move to North Carolina, um, you're gonna get a, your, uh, your citizenship is going to mean something different. And, that, and in that sense, sexual orientation federalism really means that the experience of citizenship varies across space and across jurisdiction. In, in very important ways. And that, that, I think, is an unusual aspect of the United States and its approach to uh, the struggle for, for uh, equal rights for LGBT people in Argentina. The, there's a national marriage statute that guarantees same-sex marriage. Even, interestingly, Argentina also has a very strong federal system. So, uh, so the, there's, there isn't necessarily a contradiction between having a strong federal system and having a national marriage statute. But We've never had a national marriage statute in the United States, except for the Defense of Marriage Act. And that, of course, is something that the administration is trying to fight and is trying to, to uh, uh, back away from and say that, that it is in violation of the 14th Amendment. But whether the court will, will accept the invitation to take that stance is, isn't clear yet. In the meantime, as you say, we're, we're going to have a patchwork nation when it comes to, when it comes to the, the kinds of rights that one has as a citizen. So let, let, let's take a look a little bit at the history of the perceptions of gays, lesbian, bisexuals, um, and more recently transsexuals um, over the course of um, America's history. Was it always such a big deal? No. That's one of the things that I found so surprising when I was doing the, the research and the writing for this article for annual reviews. I discovered that in the 1920s and the 1930s, the, the, it's not as if lesbians and gays, um, transgendered identification didn't exist then, but lesbians and gays were openly accepted in the same way that they, that in many ways they are now, but there was no intense policing. The closet didn't exist. People didn't have to hide their identity, and there weren't uh, the same sorts of, of physical dangers that awaited people once what I call the sexuality regime of the, of, the, of the Cold War period was put into place, physical dangers didn't exist. You didn't have to worry about going to a gay bar or a lesbian bar and being raided or worry about your safety when you left. And 
there was there was real interest in the uh, the possibility of diversity and sexual orientation in certain parts of the United States, not everywhere, but in, in but in in Los Angeles or in New York City. So so it wasn't politicized. There wasn't, and also the federal government was not politicizing it. There were there were state statutes against sodomy, but those statutes were not specifically uh, statutes aimed at homosexual identity. They were they were uh, sexual practice statutes, and they were very rarely enforced. So, so it was in some ways a, a, a comfortable time uh, uh, to be lesbian or gay in the United States in the, in, in the 1920s and in the 1930s. And it really wasn't until the Lavender Scare of the 1940s and the 1950s that that people needed to define a closet for themselves and find a way to manage other people's perceptions of who they were. So, so how how did this um, fundamentally private matter become so public? That's the thing that I'm trying to figure out next, but I think, so I'm, I'm giving a paper at the University of Virginia in, in October called Making Homosexuality a Valence Issue. A valence issue is an issue that has only one side to it, and one of the things that happened in the, by the, the end of the, the, the lavender scare was that there was only one side, namely that it was bad, and it was something that you should be deeply ashamed of, and there was no there was no alternative way of thinking about it publicly, uh, except in certain kinds of subcultures, such as the beat subculture in, in San Francisco. But I think that the the explanation for it, in terms of the construction of the of the, of the lavender regime, which is a deeply, uh, it's a kind of a moral panic, but it also involves congressional leadership and it involves, uh, I think, a hunt among people who were opposed to the New Deal and who were opposed to. Um, and opposed to uh, the Democratic Party, Republicans in, in Congress, uh, who saw in the change in the investigatory powers of Congress an opportunity to, to dramatize the presence of so many homosexuals and lesbians in federal agencies. And, to, and in the context of the national security state that was created in the, in the post-war period, when, when in fact there, was, there, was a, a very, there were some very serious concerns about, about subversion inside the federal government. I mean, there was McCarthy's scare uh, was a tremendous excess, but there were, in fact, real real spies. And so, so I think that people who were looking for an issue decided that they were going to start hunting for homosexuals. And um, and in fact, at that time, uh, people in the Republican Party began to mock the 1952 presidential candidate Adlai Stevenson for sounding fruity. And this was actually uh, there was a certain um, it wasn't it wasn't uh, uh, something that was prominently pushed by the by the, the by, by Eisenhower during his presidential campaign in 1952 but there was an effort to to say that the um, that the Democratic Party was had um, uh, was harboring homosexuals and that in fact perhaps um, uh, Adlai Stevenson himself might be not completely man, manly and so so there were political incentives in the in our in our competitive party system and there was a change in the investigatory powers of Congress and then finally there was an, a, a national security state in which loyalty and um, and uh, finding some way of policing people who were within the purview of the federal government, all these things came together to create a structural opportunity for entrepreneurs, uh, people who are little known to us now, but people uh, who at the time um, made a big deal out of this. And one of the one of the uh, fascinating um, anecdotes that I discovered from the time was that there was a, a senator from Wyoming uh, whose son was outed and um and so he 
became so depressed by this that, um, that in fact, he committed suicide in a Senate office in 1954. And, um, and, and so it gives, you, it gives some insight into, into how incredibly oppressive this environment became. And, and you say in your paper, which I, I think is, is really interesting, that um, government officials had to basically create and learn a language um, to stigmatize um, gays, lesbians, bisexuals. How, how, yes. how do you go about this? Well, the process began, and this is here really I'm borrowing uh, very um, shamelessly and, and explicitly from the work of um, Margot Kennedy, who is a, a rising star in, in, in history and teaches at Princeton University. And she wrote this wonderful book called The Straight State. And The Straight State shows that in the 1920s and the 1930s, there was real puzzlement about um, among officials, for instance, in the Bureau of Immigration or officials in the Civilian Conservation Corps who were operating federal transient camps for the New Deal, or people in the Army and the Navy. There were there was they didn't have a language. They were hunting for a language, and they also uh, weren't sure what they ought to do when they saw lots of same-sex activity in um, uh, venues and, and, and sites of government that they were in charge of. And, um, and so in the process, she calls this puzzling, and, and, and what which, which she's referring to there is a, is a word that Hugh Heckler, the political scientist, came up with when he, was, when he was talking about how a lot of what happens that creates power and that creates um, and for good or for ill, is that uh, government officials have to puzzle through what they're, what, how they're going to give a name to something and how they're going to describe something and whether they're going to problematize it and how they're going to problematize it. And so she describes this process of puzzling that occurs over, over the 20s and the 30s, but then suddenly that process gels very quickly. And, and so there's a prehistory to the Lavender Scare, but it's in the Lavender Scare itself that the words as epithets come to be used so that homosexual becomes an epithet so that the, the language of psychiatry uh, is, uh, is, is hijacked and uh, psychiatrists themselves and psychologists themselves cooperate with this. It's not clear to me why they did, but they, at that point they label homosexuality as a mental illness. And so, so these were very profound changes that had antecedents in this period of puzzling, but then suddenly uh, become... Uh, much more forceful, much more exclusionary, much more stigmatizing. So you explained that, that this matter um, split along party lines. So how, how did this occur? Well, it, it's actually the, 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 there was bipartisanship. That's one of the reasons why homosexuality was a valence issue, in the sense that Democrats who were during in the Truman administration uh, did not contest the effort to label and stigmatize homosexuals and lesbians. And they took their cues from, from, the, from the entrepreneurs whom I've described, people like Senator Kenneth Wary of Nebraska, or people inside the State Department, such as Under Secretary of State John Purifoy, who announced to uh, a Senate Investigations Committee that the Department of State had uh, preemptively uh, fired 90 homosexuals, and so that was that was one of the one of the turning points in the in the process. So, the Truman administration quietly tried to resist, but it actually didn't vocally resist. And so, 
So the two parties, in fact, agreed there was no, there were, there was no difference between the parties on gay rights until, really until the Carter administration. Carter was the first president to um, openly invite homosexuals to the White House, and when he ha had the White House Conference on Gay Rights in 1977, uh, one of his domestic policy advisors, uh, Mitch Costanza, was, was a closeted lesbian, and she invited uh, all the gay rights activists who had emerged over the course of the 60s and the 70s, many of them to the White House to have a conference on, on, on gay rights. I have the papers for that, and I need to start researching uh, what what the what the character of the conversation was, so so it's so it's not until really the 70s that the parties begin to grow apart. Until that time, um, the parties are together, and it really I think one of the things that pulls the parties apart is that activists look to the Democratic Party and to its civil rights orientation, gay activists and lesbian activists, as uh, a place to go. And uh, they could have gone to the Republican Party, but the Republican Party. I don't think initially seemed as attractive, and and then and then the Republican Party gradually started to turn. Ronald Reagan was in fact not homophobic at all. He was actually uh, very good on gay rights. But it wasn't it wasn't really until until the late 70s and the early 80s that the that the Republican Party with its uh, outreach towards evangelicals and evangelicals coming in and, and being very scared of the of the and and in reaction to the changes in society that they were seeing around them that that process of activists sorting themselves into the two parties began to pull the parties apart. This, this is clearly a new field um, in, in American political development. Um, there's still a lot to be explored, a lot to, to, uh, to look into. So what do you want to see young political scientists um, work on? Like what, what, are, what are the areas where you need more data, you need more help, um, you'd like to see, to see kind of studied more? Two places I think are one, trying to get a sense of the uh, correlates of the development at the state and local level of the sexuality regime and uh, and geocode the data. If I'm right about the the sexuality regime being a, something that was suddenly constructed, then there shouldn't be any any state or local ordinances or, or statutes uh, before the Lavender Scare, and then there should be a lot of them after the Lavender Scare. So that was, that's one area. Uh, so for example, that might involve going through newspapers and uh, searchable newspapers, and, uh, and as many as possible, and f trying to uh, geocode the incidence of bar raids on gay bars and lesbian bars. and uh, and see, uh, and then see if those are con could be connected to election campaigns for mayor or um, or for or for uh, city office. I think also the one of the things that we know already happened in Florida was that there was a that in Florida there was a, the state legislature decided to hunt for homosexuals and lesbians in in the state university and the public schools. And were there similar kinds of investigative and less well-known investigative kinds of activities, uh, stigmatizing and, and, and witch hunt kinds of activities. We know that there was a diffusion of sex pervert statutes. We need to know from uh, whether the sex pervert statutes were explicitly anti-homosexual. Uh, sex pervert was a, a, a term that was used for homosexual, but it also uh, uh, wasn't, it wasn't, it, it didn't say 
these weren't homosexual statutes. Anti, it wasn't until the 70s that you began to get anti-homosexuality statutes. So, for instance, Texas had an anti-homosexuality statute in 1973. That was what, what was overturned in Lawrence v. Texas. But before then, the sex pervert statutes, were those sex pervert statutes, do we know from the, from the state legislative records that those were in response to the signals from the center that were being sent out as the lavender scare was, was mounting in intensity? So that's another example. And finally, I think we need to know an awful lot more about public opinion and attitudes. Polling on homosexuality and attitudes towards homosexuality didn't begin until the late 1960s. And in fact, the first one, as far as I know, was done privately for CBS News for a special that Mike Wallace did. But we need to know whether or not there were other kinds of survey questions that actually tapped attitudes about uh, homosexuality and lesbianism. And um, there is, I know of one, uh, one Roper poll that refers to um, appropriate punishments for sex perverts. And so we need to know whether that was, did people understand that that was a reference to homosexuality? Similarly, when Samuel Stouffer did his book on uh, attitudes towards civil liberties and nonconformity, it was nonconformity code for, uh, for some, uh, or, or, or code in part for, uh, for sexual nonconformity. Um, I just don't know the answer to that. That'd be something I'd love to know more about. So those are examples of the kinds of things that we need to that we need to know. And then also we simply need to know we need to send people into the archives to find out how the group system emerged and grew. How did the why did the Gay Liberation Front uh, emerge? Where did it emerge? Where uh, and why did uh, it eventually stall? Um, and what was the impact of the Gay Liberation Front? So we need to have um, we need to get a sense of the development of the group system after the early wave of, of resistance, which is in the form of the Mattachine Society. The Mattachine Society was incredibly small. So, um, and the Daughters of Belitis was, was the lesbian organization from the, of the 1950s. And then suddenly there's this huge takeoff in, in, um, in collective action. Where did that come from? Did it come from gay bars? We don't know the answer to that. So let's let's hope we can get a few people interested in the topic to uh, to help you out on all these matters, uh, Professor Vallely. Thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. It was a great pleasure to talk with you. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rascuetpaz. Thanks for listening.